0: The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I want to give a quick update on where we stand in terms of physical gatherings. I know uh, some. there's been talk of, you know, restrictions lifting and things happening, so I want to just kind of give you guys an update of what we're thinking and praying through. So uh, I, I, first of all, I want to say that because we have a diverse church with lots of different kind of people, which is a great thing, uh, but because that's true, I know that we're going to have folks who tend towards two different ends of the spectrum when it comes to thinking about this. So I know we've got some folks probably who think quarantine should be totally done now, uh, and there's probably some who think it needs to continue longer. But the, the, the question here is not uh, how do we please people on either end of the spectrum. The question is how do we please the Lord, and uh, that's what we're after. The reality here is, though, that that there is no easy answer. Uh, If you've paid attention at all, you know the information is conflicting, and it's it's a really major task to sort through all of the guidance uh, given from both the federal and and state level. But the answer to how we please the Lord in all this is by making decisions out of faith and love, and not out of fear. And so that's got to be our focus. That's our Guidepost. So, while we're we're keeping in mind um, that we're going to keep doing our best to honor the governing authorities which God has established, we also know that we answer to a higher authority than than that. And so, uh, we we got to work through all that. We have to consider all. It. It's it's a lot. There's a lot to think about. There's a lot to pray through. Uh, both the federal and state government have released plans for reopening. Uh, these plans work in phases and the federal plan has fairly clear benchmarks for when it's safe to move forward and so um, each phase as we've seen it has been based on 14 consistent days of a downward trend in cases of the virus. So here in Ohio we are inching towards phase one uh, but even at that um, even if if we hit that benchmark of phase one we're supposed to keep everyone six feet apart Uh, wearing masks is highly recommended and it's it's really difficult in a code compliant way to have children's discipleship. Uh, Adults you can tell to stay six feet apart from each other and not run up and hug each other and you know I I know some of us would probably still struggle with that even that are adults but it's really hard for kids um, to remember even if they get it to remember to do that. Uh, the other thing we got to think about is that if we bring everyone together and, and one person that was there ends up testing positive, we're going to have to shut back down, we have to alert the health department, and everyone then who was there has to go into a, a mandatory seven-day quarantine uh, to watch for symptoms. And that, uh, and I realize some of you may say, well, people are going to the grocery store and they're doing this and they're doing that. Uh, they're, they're at risk anyways, but that, and that may be true, but it's a whole different ballgame when we bring them all into one room and now we're responsible for creating that contact. Uh, and aside from that, when we imagine what forcing a physical gathering right now would look like and we compare it to the, the digital gatherings that we're doing now and we ask which looks more fruitful, for now the answer is to keep doing what we're doing. And When I say more fruitful, I'm talking about the purpose of us gathering together, uh, to study God's word worship him, uh, to take communion, you know, having families separated in, in little pods six feet away from each other and, and then trying to figure out uh, what, what do we do if more than the allotted capacity shows up? Are we turning people away? And, and what I'm not saying to you is that if, if these phases don't progress, that we won't work out how to meet physically. What I'm saying is right now, it doesn't seem that the the risk is worth what you're going to get for it. Um, And as much as I would like to give everyone like an event horizon on when this will change, we really can't until we see how the next few weeks play out. So know this, uh, we've said this from the beginning, gathering digitally like this is not a replacement for the God ordained command for us to gather together. Uh, There is something to God's people coming together into the same space To study his word and worship, uh, for fellowship. These are all real parts of God's mission of making disciples and spreading his gospel in the world. Um, The the frequent gathering of God's people is a crucial part of his plan. And so uh, that's important. It's important to us. And man, I really miss preaching directly to your faces. Even those of you that nod off sometimes, I miss you too. Uh, Because preaching into a camera is a real bummer compared to all of us being together. But uh, we're going to keep doing our best to discern what wisdom is, God's will is, and we're going to keep trying to please him. And we're going to make decisions out of love and faith, not fear. Okay? Uh, Keep praying for us uh, as a church and as a leadership team as we think through these things and wrestle through these things. Um, It's not easy. Uh, And I also want you to know that if you have concerns or, or you'd like to talk about more details of all of that, um, please know we're here. We're here to talk to you about anything, um, anything you need, but reach out uh, if you've got concerns or you want to hear more details. Uh, There's a lot more I could say, but uh, I want to get to God's word here and get preaching about the life of Moses in the context of the sermon series we're in. I'm, I'm excited to get in here and get ripping. I hope you are too. So as I said, we're continuing in our series, What Is God Doing?, Uh, Last week we looked at Joseph's life and we talked about how the tone of our hearts and voices makes all the difference when we ask that question, what is God doing? There's a big difference between what is God doing and what is God doing? One is out of faith and hope and trust and the other has an accusatory tone uh, which if you look at the book of Job, you look at the book of Romans um, that's not the tone we as mere humans want to be coming at the God of the universe with. Amen. Uh, so this week, what we're going to do is look at the life of Moses. So we're going to read from Exodus 1 uh, and a little bit of, of 2, and that'll get us started. And then I'm going to summarize the next 17 chapters. Don't be scared. Uh, it won't be as long as that sounds. And uh, it's going to be awesome. So let's let's get cracking. I hope you found Exodus chapter 1. That's the second book of the Old Testament, and uh, we're going to be in chapter 1, verse 1. Read to chapter 2, verse 4. Okay. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came, each one with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, all the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number. Isn't the Bible awesome? They came from the loins of Jacob. Man, that's great. Okay. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose in Egypt who did not know Joseph. He he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor and they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors, which they rigorously imposed on them. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra, and the other was named Pua. And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God, did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing? And let the boys live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied, became very mighty because the midwives feared God. He established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who is born, you are to cast into the Nile and every daughter you are to keep alive. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. Praise God for his word. Now, uh, in terms of bummer situations to be living in, I would put this at, at pretty close to the top of the heap. You understand what happens here. Moses' mother puts him in a basket and floats him into the Nile River as opposed to having to murder him by the command of the king of Egypt. This is the condition that they're living in. This is what's going on. Uh, you can imagine in a situation like this, it's not hard to imagine the children of Israel saying, what is God doing as they're living under the command to, chill, to kill all of their male children? Uh, and as they were likely asking that question, what is God doing? It, it turns out as is always the answer. The answer is he was doing a lot. He was moving. He was working on behalf of his people as he always is. So as I told you, I'm going to, I'm going to lay out for you now, the kind of tracking along Moses life, the next 17 chapters will take us up through Exodus 19. So she puts the basket into the Nile and, uh, what happens is Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the Nile to bathe. She finds the child, and it says she opens up the the basket, and he's crying, and, and her heart goes out to him. And so she sends one of her maids to go find um, a Hebrew uh, a Hebrew nurse to take care of the child. Well, wouldn't you know it, the nurse they grab is actually Moses's mother. So Moses ends up getting to nurse and take care of Moses on behalf of Pharaoh's daughter, who once he was of age, took him into her home and adopted him. And so he's raised in the house of Pharaoh, raised with their education standards. And a lot of the fact that Moses was raised in the house of Pharaoh probably had to do with, there was was elements of that that trained him and were crucial parts of how it is he was able to do what it is God called him to do later. Now, as Moses grows in age, becomes a young man, uh, the Bible says that one day he encounters an a Egyptian abusing some Hebrews. And he kind of, the Bible says he looks around, makes sure no one's looking, and he kills the Egyptian, it says that he hides him in the sand. And then the next day, he walks up to a couple Hebrews who are fighting with each other, and he says, Guys, why are you fighting with each other? And their response is, Well, who's made you king and judge over us. Are you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian? And Moses is like, oh, snap. I didn't think anybody saw that. So basically the Bible says he reasons, okay, and everybody knows what's going on. And so he flees. And he and he runs away and he goes to a place called Midian. And in Midian there's a man who has seven daughters. And it says that uh, basically Moses ends up sitting at this well and, and these seven daughters come out and they're trying to get water for their father's flocks. And the uh, Bible says some shepherds Kind of are chasing them away from the water, and uh, it doesn't specifically say what happens. It just says that Moses stands up for them and, and helps water their flocks. I I kind of imagine. I guess I guess Moses is kind of brick. I I am either he stood up and flexed out on these guys, and they just decided they didn't want to fight him, or he put his hands on him. I don't know. They didn't. They don't say. But basically, the shepherds backed off. And uh, let, let the water be taken by the daughter. So daughters go back and tell their dad. He's like, how'd you get back so quick? I don't know if every day they were running from the shepherds, you know, or whatever his expectation was. But they say, well, this guy helped us. This Egyptian helped us. And the dad's like, well, why didn't you invite him over for food? So in Moses comes, basically, this guy ends up hiring him. And also uh, Moses marries one of his daughters, Zipporah. Okay, so uh, he's now, he he stays there. and and becomes uh, basically a a shepherd for this man and so he's taking care of his flocks uh, also a part of his training and he's he's in Midian for about 40 years as a shepherd very interesting to see how this is playing out especially if you know the story of Moses you can probably already understand how some of this is already making sense that in all of this seeming like he's had to run from everything he knew and he's in this foreign land and seems like it's, there's all this bad fortune. You can see how God was lining things up. And so one day he's out there and he's tending those flocks. And the uh, Bible says he, he notices this bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And uh, he turns aside to see what's going on. And the uh, Bible says that God speaks to Moses out of that bush. And he basically tells him, I've heard the cry of my people. I've heard uh, the fact that they're, they're groaning and, and the abuse that they're under in Egypt. And I'm, I'm sending you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go to come and worship me. And then you, you kind of see Moses start to unpack this series of excuses, at least four. The first thing he says right off the bat, which seems very humble, uh, his response to God as, as he tells him out of this burning bush that you're going to be the mouthpiece I send to tell Pharaoh to let my people go, his first question is, well, who am I? Who, who am I that you would send me? Right, and, and God's answer to that is, certainly I will be with you. And so the answer is really, you're, you're, you're nobody, but I'm going to be with you, and that's why it matters. That's why you're going to have what it takes to stand up to this monumental task of going to challenge the king of Egypt. Moses' next question and where he's feeling hesitant is he says, well, what if I go there and I tell the children of Israel that you sent me? Well, who who do I say sent me? And God's answer to that is a fairly well-known set of verses. He says, you tell them I am who I am. You tell them I am sent you. Whoo, buddy. You got to be somebody when your answer to who you are is I am. Come on now. Man, I feel that all the way down in my bones. That's good. That's the God we serve. So God handles that objection. You, you tell him I am sent you. That, that'll do. Okay, good. Yes, got that. Then Moses' next question is, well, what, what if they don't believe me? What, what if I say that I am sent me and they don't believe me? This man's got some excuses. He doesn't want to do this. He feels way in over his head. And, and he is, to be quite honest. Uh And God says, okay, here's what we're going to do. Throw your staff down on the ground. He does, it becomes a serpent. And it says, Moses runs from it. So Moses runs away from it. God says, grab it by the tail. It becomes a staff again as he does that. So he says, all right, that's one sign. Then he says, put your hand into your bosom, you know, like into the fold of the bosom of his garment, I'm assuming. So he does that and it comes out and it says his hand was as leprous, as white as snow. And he said, put it back, puts it back in and it's healed. He says, that's the second sign I'm giving you. And he says, if if they don't believe those two, take some water out of the Nile, pour it out on the ground, it'll become blood. So he's given him some some signs, some wonders to show the power of God and, and kind of a seal of approval that God has indeed sent him. And even after all of this, after serpents and leper hands and and all of this happening and god answering all his questions he's got one last objection he says to god why why are you sending me i'm slow of speech i don't talk good right this is moses last ditch attempt like All the rest of the stuff hasn't worked, but maybe the fact that he's slow of speech, God's going to say, oh, you know what? You're right. I meant the burning bush was meant for another shepherd that was going to come along later, right? I mean, what is Moses thinking? But this is what he does. So God, I'm slow of speech. I'm I'm scared to go try to be the one talking to Pharaoh for you. And God's answer to him in that is, did I not make the mouth? Here's, Here's what you need to know. I will teach you what to say. Now, God does give a concession in allowing him to also have Aaron as a companion. Uh, And Aaron apparently does talk good. And uh, so they end up going together. Uh, And I think that just partially shows like the mercy of God that, you know, by the time the Bible says by the time Moses was saying, well, you know, I don't talk real good. I don't know if I should do this. It gives the idea that God was getting a little frustrated at this point. But even in the midst of that, he grants him the ability to take Aaron with him. Uh, as a help. And so I think that shows a lot of the father heart of God. And, and when, when you think about these excuses, these four big excuses, where Moses is trying to get out of this assignment, this mission that God has given him, while speaking out of a burning bush that's not being consumed, by the way, but as Moses keeps trying to wiggle out of this, really those excuses, they all kind of amount to him asking, God, what are you doing? God, what are you doing? with with me why why me what are you doing here and really part of what we see in this God was dealing with Moses and showing him something but he's also having had this be recorded in the scriptures so that we see it and know it as well God is showing him that he likes to use people to accomplish things that they can't accomplish in their own strength God thoroughly enjoys and does often take people who no one else would have thought is the right person for the job and empower them by his grace and his strength to do something they would not be able to do on their own. Because that helps us stay out of our perennial foolishness and and the propensity and tendency that we have to take credit ourselves. If God always lets us just stay in the wheelhouse of what we feel comfortable with or what we desire or what we feel we're gifted and, and, and talented at or we have strengths at, then it's very easy for us to dismiss him and think we've done it on our own, forgetting that whatever those gifts and talents are, also the very breath in our lungs, by the way, all are gifts that belong to him anyways, things that have been given to us from God. But we forget that sometimes when we're just operating in those. But here God takes a man who knows he's a murderer, is on the run, knows he's not very good at talking, picks that guy to be the one to go to the king of Egypt, the pharaoh. Powerful guy. And say, hey, God wants you to release the entire workforce that you have building your country. That's just like God to do something like that. Is there anything in there for you? Is there anything you know God's asked you to do that was outside your wheelhouse and you've had some excuses or you've just ignored? Is there something that God's asking you to do right now? Is there something you've shelved and you, you've, you've had all the reasons? Well, God, who am I, who am I to do that? Or, well, what, what if they don't believe me? Or, friend, it's not about you. It's not about me. God's not looking for the most talented person out there. God's looking for someone with a willing heart to surrender and to trust him. It's much less about the talent you perceive yourself having and much more about how much you trust him. That's what this comes down to. And God is often doing that in us. So Moses and Aaron go. They get in front of Pharaoh and they tell him, our God, the God of Israel, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, wants you to let his people go travel three days into the wilderness so they can make sacrifices to their God. Pharaoh's first answer is, who is this? I don't know this guy. And uh, so they do some more talking, try to do some convincing, let Pharaoh know who he's dealing with here. Pharaoh's a hard man, thinks he thinks he's the, the top of the heap in terms of power. And so instead of letting God's people go, what he does is say, oh, okay, so they're all complaining and they all have this desire to, they got time to think about wanting to go out and worship their God. Okay, here's how we're going to fix that. We've had them making all these bricks and we've been giving them big piles of straw to make the bricks with. So instead of that, we're going to take those away and they're going to have to go gather the straw themselves and yet we're going to demand that they turn out the same quota of bricks that they did before so we're going to make their work much much harder and uh it talks about you know them beating them as a result of not meeting those quotas and then and then even some of the sons of Israel are coming to Moses and Aaron and being like hey guys what are you doing you're <laughs> you're causing problems for us here thanks for the sentiment but no thanks uh but it doesn't take long. Moses and Aaron th- then then go back to God and say, what, what, what have you done? What are you doing? What, you haven't delivered your people. It's gotten worse for them. And God says, hold my staff. <laughs> God says, hold on a sec. I got something for you. And, and, and he says, here's what's going to happen. There's, gonna, there's about to be some plagues. I'm about to unleash some fury. I'm about to show Pharaoh who is really boss. And so Ten plagues ensue, and there's a there 's a plague of frogs and there 's a plague of lice and flies and there's there 's a plague of hail and there 's a, a plague of darkness and the, and the Nile turns into blood and it 's interesting uh, if you if you go look at it each one of those plagues there was there was a whole pantheon of Egyptian gods, uh, most prominent of them would have been Ra the uh, sun god and it 's interesting like when when One of the plagues is darkness. It's 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 a direct insult to that Egyptian deity. Uh, When the Nile turns to blood, you know they they there was a deity supposedly over the Nile and their livestock and and the frogs and all. Each one of them, when you understand the pantheon of Egyptian gods, uh, basically every time God brought a plague, it was showing that He actually was in control. So there's this process that happens where it seems like through those plagues, Pharaoh's breaking down, but then he then he decides no. Once the plague lets up, he's like nope back right to where he was. And uh, so this goes back and forth. And, and, and the last plague is the death of all the firstborn in Egypt. God said he's going he's gonna to send a death angel through there and the firstborn, all the firstborn of Egypt are going to die. And he tells his people that what they need to do is to sacrifice a lamb and take the blood of that and take it and put it over the doorposts of their home. And as that death angel passed through the country, executing that last plague, it would pass over them, and that they would not be harmed. And so the Bible talks about a great wailing in Egypt the night that that happened. And, And this plague finally did break the heart of Pharaoh, and exactly what God said happened, that not only did they tell the Hebrews to go, but they sent them with all kinds of plunder just here take all this stuff and go get away from us as they wept over the loss of the firstborn in all of their country uh it's very interesting though that even something that monumental even something that shook them to that deep of their core pharaoh changes his mind again and so as as the hebrews are are leaving and they're running out of egypt pharaoh then pursues and he's coming up behind them and so there's this part that happens where the the Hebrews they come up to the Red Sea and so they got the Red Sea on one side they're looking behind them and they can see the chariots of Pharaoh's army coming and and they're quick again to grumble and to begin to declare Moses what what are you doing what what is God doing what did you bring us out here just to die in the wilderness and we see this incredible display of God's power as he moves a cloud of his glory behind them and he tells Moses You tell the people not to worry. Move forward. And as they move forward in faith, I'm going to part this sea. And it says, An east wind blew all night, separated the sea, and that the the children of Israel walked across on dry land. And as they got across, the Egyptians pursued them. He told Moses to put his staff back out over, and the sea fell down and crushed them. All of Pharaoh's army decimated. In a display of God's power, over Pharaoh who saw himself to be a God and who thought that he could reject God's demand that his people be set free. And so much of what was happening there was declaring God's ultimate authority, sovereignty, and power. Not only to the Hebrews who had forgotten it and needed help being convinced again, but also to Egypt and to anybody else that heard about it. Amen. And so they they crossed into then uh what's known as the wilderness. And so they're, the, the, the promise of what God is doing is he's, he's taking them towards Canaan, this land flowing with milk and honey, this promised land. But as some of you know, who are students of the Bible, it's, it's just a, a several day journey. It's not very far from where they were to get to this land of Canaan, but it ends up taking them 40 years. And that journey begins with them coming from that Red Sea experience. It's not too long. Everyone starts to be thirsty. The first water they come upon, it says it's bitter. It can't be drank and God shows a certain plant, a certain log to Moses and then he throws that in the water and it makes it sweet. Uh, A lot of scholars think that was organic stevia. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I don't know. We don't know what it was. It doesn't say. Uh, I do like stevia though that has nothing to do with this. Okay. So God provides water that way. And then, and then it's not too long and people are grumbling about being hungry. And they're like, well, you know, at least back in Egypt, we got to sit around full meat pots and we could eat till we were full. Yeah, we were slaves. Yeah. We, we were totally not fulfilling the destiny that God had for us, but you know, at least we could eat. At least we could have those meager scraps that the Egyptians gave us. And so God provides this miracle food. It's, it's called manna. It says that in the morning, it was like the dew would harden on the ground. It would become like, I always imagined it kind of looking like frosted flakes. I, I don't know. I mean, based on the description of the Bible, that's the best I can come up with. I don't know if it tasted like, it said it tastes kind of like honey and some other things together. So I don't know. God, every morning was pouring out a giant box of frosted flakes on the ground. So when he told him, listen, here's how this is going to work. You, you go collect how much you need for that day. Don't hold any more until the day before sabbath and you take two portions worth to feed everybody in your house for two days if, if you keep more than that day's worth it's going to go bad and let, let's pop quiz bible quiz right now let's see everyone pay to, if you fell asleep on me i'm asking you a question what do you think happened when god said only collect enough for that day and and there'll be new every day but you only take enough for that day do you think everybody listened to that yes or no I'll give you three guesses. you got to get it right if you got three guesses. It's so a yes or no. That's right. No, they didn't. And so the ones that didn't, that tried to hoard it up because they didn't, you know, they're just used to that, man. They're used to, if, it, if I can get it now, I'll get it and try to store it up. Well, it turned, had worms in it. And it said it turned bad. It was no good. And there's something to that, right? There's something to why God did exactly what he was doing. Why has he got them out here in the wilderness to begin with? Oh, friends, it's, it's all got a purpose. But it goes on from there. So they, had, they got the first water. Then now they got the manna. He also provided quail for them to eat. Uh, and they, they keep moving. And at this point, they're moving towards Mount Sinai. And they come to this place. It's called the Rock of Horeb. And again, everybody's thirsty. Now there's no water again. And God instructs Moses to go up to this rock and to strike it with his staff and that water will come out of this thing. And it's real interesting that Horeb in Hebrew, it means like a dried up wasteland, like a desert place. So it's a very dead, dry place. And and this is where God provides water. And and we're talking about a whole bunch of people. I mean, you hear, you hear variation in, in what scholars estimate, but we're talking about at least hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, and, and this rock is struck and enough water bursts forth out of this and is flowing that those people can all get water. And, uh, From there, they, they end up at the base of Mount Sinai. That's where, of course, Moses goes up and encounters God, receives the, the tablets with the law on from there. You know, he comes back down, there's the golden calf that really ticks him off and God off. They kind of trade back and forth, you know, God's ready to smite him. Moses says, hold on. Moses ready to smite him. God says, hold on. So they're like, you know, the people, man, who stiff necked and rebellious. Let me tell you, uh, a really great mirror for us to look into because that's, that's me and you uh, half the time. So uh, then it goes on, you know, instructions for the tabernacle and, and and there's a bunch more time in the wilderness before they end up crossing into the promised land. But we're, we're kind of capping off our look at the life of Moses and this idea of what God was doing in that, stopping it at Exodus 19. So so the question is what, is, what is God doing? What is God doing taking them out of Egypt and, and taking them through the Red Sea and providing manna for them on, in this kind of daily provisional way? What is he doing by not leading them to uh, a place where they can just gather the water themselves, but where God has to provide this water out of this rock of Horeb? Well, what he's doing is he was teaching them that they needed him to live. Just physically, they needed God to live. He was teaching them dependence upon him, which can be so hard because part of the rebellion that lives in our hearts as a result of sin from all the way back in Adam and Eve is a desire for autonomy, that we get so foolish that we think we can do this ourselves. And so God was showing them, and you could say, well, man, this is so dramatic. What's with the, the log and the water and the, and the manna and all? What, why the whole drama unfolded? Why didn't God just tell them that they needed him? But dear friend, if that's your question, can I just humbly submit to you that you, you, you maybe are missing what human nature is like. <laughs> you can't just tell us. We have to be shown and oftentimes over and over and over again before it gets through our thick skulls. The same thing was happening with the plagues in Egypt. God is powerful. God is good. God is worthy to be trusted. And we were made for Him. We need Him to live. It's not just that. It's not just that they needed manna to eat and live, that they needed water to drink and live. But all of this, this whole unfolding drama, starting with Moses fleeing to Midian and the burning bush and all of that, it was all pointing to the fact not only that we need him to live, but that we need him to live forever. This was not just a story about rescuing the Hebrews out of Egypt. It was not just a story about him taking them into the wilderness. There was this, this all ties into this grand overall redemption narrative. There was a reason why God did everything he did. He was doing something, lots of something. Friends, think about it think about what he was pointing to think about what he was showing them think about what he was weaving the beauty he was weaving this scarlet thread he was weaving through all of these events pointing us to the fact that we need him to live forever because yes it's important to know that we need him that our he is our provider like physically today we need God if this if this whole thing with jobs and the, a maxed out unemployment system and businesses falling, if we haven't been shook back to the reality that we need him to live every day, that our best bet, that our only shot is to trust him for our daily provision, then, then friends, we haven't been shook enough yet. But I think many of us have, and I thank God for that. But more important than that is this is this undertone that's, that's coming through this whole thing, that we need him to live forever, that we can't be good and righteous on our own, that we can't save ourselves, that eternity belongs to him and that he is the one we have to cling to in order to see that. Think about it. The the last plague with the instructions to take that lamb, to sacrifice a lamb. This This is thousands of years before much of the messianic prophecies had even Come forward. This is one of the clearest pointing forwards, forward pointing clues to what God is doing as he's unfolding his plan of redemption. Kill that lamb and spread the blood over the doorpost and death will pass over you it continues as they flee egypt they come up to the red sea what do they have behind them they have their taskmaster. they have the one who had enslaved them they had impending death coming to their backs in front of them they had a red sea that they couldn't they couldn't swim across they couldn't jump across there was nothing they could do about that red sea in front of them what did they need to happen They needed God to come and make a way. They needed God to come and part that Red Sea, pointing again to the fact that when death is our enemy, we need God to fight the battle for us. He parts the Red Sea. They go through on dry land. The sea falls back down upon that enemy that was trying to bring them death. Manna. The provision of manna. Yes, it was about feeding his people at that time, but it's also so much deeper than that because for them that manna meant life right then physical life but later doesn't jesus come and doesn't he call himself the bread of life isn't there something to the reality that god showed them this this is not something that you're going to be able to make it work better for you by working harder you work harder than all the rest of your hebrew brothers and sisters and you gather more of this up and you hoard it and you stick it in your tent by your efforts you're not the, the way this works It's got nothing to do with you. It's got to do with me providing what is needed and you receiving that gift with gratitude and trusting me that tomorrow there's going to be more. Woo, come on, you're starting to see it, aren't you? It doesn't end there. When they come to that rock of Horeb, what did I tell you Horeb men, It's a dried up desert wasteland. It's, It's a place of death. And then Moses goes up and he strikes this rock of Horeb and Living water flows out of it. Isn't Jesus the rock of ages? And isn't he also the living water? And friends, that, that dry desert wasteland of Horeb, that is us apart from Christ. That is our hearts apart from Christ. That's how much shot. If it wasn't for Moses obeying God, if it wasn't for God's willingness to have him strike that rock and for water to flow out of it, they would have died right there in that place. They had no shot. And yet God made a way in the same way that for you and me and every other person who is dead and dry in their hearts apart from Christ, he has made a way that we can come and drink of living water and have life. And that's why Jesus came. (laughs) That's why Jesus came to give life. Hallelujah. Everlasting life. He's not just concerned with our day-to-day, but thank God he is concerned with our day-to-day. Thank God he isn't just about life to come and eternity, but he cares about right now. He's promised to provide for us right now. But friends, even more than that, even deeper and richer and more beautiful than that, he has promised to provide what we need to have life forevermore. He's provided that to us through his gospel. He sent Jesus, the, the the parting, the Passover lamb, and the parting of the Red Sea, and the manna in the wilderness, and the rock of Horeb, it was all pointing forward to the fact that Jesus was going to come, just as was prophesied, that he was going to be born in Bethlehem to a virgin, that he was going to live a perfect life, that he was going to die then in our place for our sins, and that he would rise three days later. And just like the enemy of death was swallowed up when the Red Sea crushed back over him. When Jesus rose from the grave, death and hell and Hades and Satan and all the forces of darkness had their necks and backs broken by the power of God. Uh, the same display of God's might and power, the, the, the Red Sea falling back in on that army. It's hard for us to perceive, but Jesus coming up out of that tomb is, is a display of power like that to an infinitely greater magnitude. When Jesus walked up out of the tomb, It sent an echo around the world and down through the ages that God is the God who is I am. And what He says, He does. He can be trusted. And we need Him. Hallelujah. Amen. The gospel is this, that we are dead. That we have the same shot those children of Israel had in the desert. Apart from Him, we are going to die. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. It's not about us going out and making manna ourselves or gathering more for ourselves. We live by His provision. It's, it's true physically, and friends, it's true when it comes to salvation and eternal life. This is all about the power of God. And much of what the Scriptures is doing, much of what the story of redemption being recorded for us and then unfolding before our eyes from Genesis to Revelation is to bring us to this conclusion. You ready? I need God. I need him. I can't do this without him. I am not good. I am not righteous. I am not, I have not what it takes to live now or for eternity aside from him. We need him. We were made for him. That's the, that's the issue here. Maybe, maybe if we were made for some other purpose, it would, it would make sense to think we can do this without God. But friends, we were made for him, for his purpose, for fellowship with him. To be separated from him is to be separated from the very source of life for us as humans. That is why there's such a cavernous ache in so many people. As they try to live life without him, it won't work. And whatever little pleasantries you try to toss into that cavern only make it worse. The disappointment, it mounts up over time. Friends, today is the day to bend down and to drink of the sweet water that pours from the rock of Horeb. From the rock of ages. To trust Him. Eat of that manna. See that He is good. Surrender. Repent. Declare that you know you're a sinner. That you need a Savior. And trust in God's good promise to save you through Christ. Hallelujah. I just want to address quickly that I know some may think I've heard this accusation leveled at God. It comes from the mouth of fools. Some think that's narcissistic or self-absorbed of God to go to such great lengths to show his great might and power and to show people their need for him. But the only time we believe that it would be narcissistic or self-absorbed of God to glorify himself that we would be drawn to him is if we don't see God as the supreme good for all mankind. When we understand that God is the supreme good, that God is our purpose and our destiny, that being connected to Him, that being with Him is what we were made for, and the only place we're going to find any type of joy, peace, fulfillment, where we're going to be able to actually touch the reality of of love divine that we were created for... That if that is our purpose, and that is the greatest good for all mankind, then it is the most loving thing that God could possibly do to glorify Himself and make Himself known and show His great might and power that we may be drawn to Him. It's not that God is insecure and, and Is showing off so that people think he's cool. Listen, when you're the one who says, Let there be light and there is light, you're not worried about people's opinions. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is we have a God of such supreme, incredible love for us that he will do all that is necessary to catch our attention. He'll light a bush on fire and it won't be consumed. He will draw an entire nation's worth of people out of a country. He will send plagues. He will part red seas. He will bring manna. He will strike, He will have his servants strike a rock and have thousands of gallons of water pour out of it for his people to be able to drink. He will send a savior to be born of a virgin to rock the entire world and change it forever to show us how good and powerful and mighty he is and how worthy he is of our worship so that our hearts and our minds would be drawn towards him. And all of it is a great act of love. Because when our eyes turn to him and our hearts bow before him, we find ourselves in the place that we were created to be. We find ourselves in the place where that aching, cavernous hole in our hearts no longer consumes us. We can have peace. And we can know that we're home. We are home in the hands of our God. Amen. Praise God. In light of all of that, dear friends, may we know God as our greatest need. And may we live in light of this precious truth. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for recording your great workings in the life of Moses from him being set in a basket and floated into a river. We can see your divine hand and sovereignty In the fact that it's Pharaoh's daughter that picks him up, calls his own mama to come and nurse him, that he's raised in Pharaoh's house, that he has this protective instinct over his people that he ends up fleeing to Midian, that you meet him there. God, that you send him to Pharaoh, him of all people, that you do great mighty works and wonders among the Egyptians, that you bring your people out, that you bring them into a wilderness and you teach them how truly dependent we are on you. God, thank you help us see ourselves in the children of Israel who having just been set free from the slavery of Egypt would grumble about something so silly as food choices. God, we are oftentimes so distracted. We are oftentimes so pleased with the little trappings of, of what this life will give us, what the enemy will give us, what the forces of darkness will give us that will We'll sit in that slavery, happy to sit next to our little meat pot, eating our little scraps, when God, you have something so much more for us. God, I pray for those that are still stuck there. I pray that you would put a burning passion inside of your people, those who have trusted you and crossed that Red Sea, those who have eaten of the sweetness of that manna, those who have drank that sweet water pouring from the rock of Horeb, those who have tasted and seen that Jesus is life. God, may there be a passion stirred in us. May our hearts be broken for those who still sit in Egypt thinking everything's okay. Yeah, they don't don't like how hard life is, but they don't even have a vision for what it could be to live with you and for you, to taste and to, to drink and to experience your provision. God, thank you. Thank you not only do you care about eternity, not only... Is there beautiful foreshadowing of all you intended to do throughout this account with Moses? But I thank you that you do care about our daily bread. You care about providing for your children. That you know what we have need of and you've promised to provide that. God help us. There is a lot of temptation for many of us to doubt that, to forget that, to wring our hands, to be anxious. God please continue to show yourself faithful. Continue to do things we would never expect. Continue, God, just to rest upon us in the might of your Holy Spirit. Remind us of all the times you've been faithful just thus far. In your word, all the faithfulness you've shown to the promises of your word, the times you've been faithful to us in our own lives. God, please help us be a people not to let let loose easily, to, to release our grip from the memory of all the times you've been good to us and faithful to us and you've spoken to us and you've, You've provided, God. There's so many times that you've been so, so faithful. May we remember those and apply the faith that comes from those to the situations we're in front of right now and the ones that are in front of us. God, we do love you and we do trust you. And God, help us, help us in this time to keep asking, what are you doing? With curiosity and excitement at the answer knowing that you are working for the good of those that love you and are called according to your purpose. Please don't let that become cliche to us, God, because it is so wonderful. What a precious promise. We love you. Thank you that you loved us first. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.